Judges. We have finally come to the end, and we are going to tear through two chapters. Uh, I wish they weren't even in the Bible. It's just such a sad end. And what we're really going to end up looking at today is what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's really what the bottom line is today, Devin. That's the big idea, is when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, everything comes apart, socially and in every other way. This, all this saga will end today with the saying, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I want to just look at a Bible timeline again for a second as we're finishing up Judges. Uh, we have creation, then we have the patriarchs. We kind of led up through the patriarchs to get us into the book of Joshua. Remember when we got out of Egypt and went into the land, we looked at some of the promises that were made to the patriarchs. We had the exodus in which Moses led the people out after 400 years of bondage. Then we had the conquest, and the book of Joshua was so exciting to us because we saw how it was a book of conquering and conquest, all having to do with faithfulness. And then we end up going into Judges where it's about compromise, it's about syncretism, and it's about defeat. And it's about the defeat that comes in our lives when our lives are filled with faithlessness instead of faithfulness. Then we have the time of the kingdom, which we have not really studied here, at least not uh, from the pulpit here. Then the exile, which we did back when we studied Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, if you'll remember, you that were here in our first year of ministry here, then the return to the land, then 400 years of silence, when no more was it said in Israel, thus saith the Lord. Isn't that sad to think 400 years went by and they said, no more was it said, thus saith the Lord in Israel. Then Jesus came in the time of the church in which we are now, times of missions, and then the future. This last week, uh, Judy Price asked me, she says, do you ever preach on anything on the end times. You might not have said it quite so uh, in, in such a way that I felt like I needed to do it, but I got to think about it, and we've done all that. The last time I spoke on the end times was in May of 2020. Right when COVID hit, I preached First and Second Thessalonians. I, had to, I don't even remember doing it. I guess I was so preoccupied with COVID, I don't, didn't even remember having done it. So for the next four weeks, because on the fifth week will be Palm Sunday, I'm just going to do a mini course in Bible prophecy. And in the end times, in what we see in the signs that are in the world today, I know you've asked me some questions about that, our, our young Irish friend who's come and visited with us. So I think I'm going to do that starting next week. It'll be a four-week short course in biblical prophecy. We're going to look at Daniel. You, you guys okay with that? I don't usually do topical things other than at Advent, but I think we need to do that. There's quite a few people that have asked me about that. So we're going to end up, and I haven't decided yet, I will tonight with the urging of my, my sweet bride, how I'm going to divide them up into weeks so she can pick out the songs that will go with those. But anyway, that's what we're going to do for the next four weeks leading into Palm Sunday, which will be on the fifth week. And I am going to show you in the prophecies of Daniel how the specific day of Palm Sunday was predicted to the very day. It's kind of astonishing. And for that reason, uh, Rabbi Daniel told us that Jews are discouraged from ever looking at the book of Daniel. It's just led too many people to the cross, too many people to understanding who Jesus was. So it's sort of laid aside 
and not talked about. But we're going to talk about it, and that'll be on Palm Sunday. That's how we'll end up. We're going to kind of be jumping around, which I don't like to do, but I'm going to try to give you context to give you continuity of where we are in the Bible and why it's in there, okay? So we're in Judges still today. Judges has been a view of the cycle of sin, not only in Israel, but the cycle of, let's just say, disbelief that happens in our own lives. That's what we've gone through. And we've not only seen a cycle of sin, which is a bummer, but we've seen a cycle of grace, haven't we? And that, that's the good news. Each and every time we see that God is back there lifting his people up when they cry out with repentant and sincere hearts, putting them back where they need to be, and he sends them a judge, which I said before, it's like the Taoiseach. I showed him a picture of the McMullen Taoiseach. That's the chieftain back in the old days of Scotland. That's what these judges were like. They were warriors. They were arbiters of dis disputes and that sort of thing. But Israel would fall into idolatry. First, they served the Lord. Everything was great. We know that in our life. Everything's going good. And then we get spiritually lazy, don't we? Days will go by when we don't even think about asking God's counsel to do things. We just charge off making plans for our life and then asking God, God, bless these plans that I've made. And we've learned watching Joshua, that is a formula for disaster, haven't we? Then Israel was enslaved. And we talked about how the parallel would be that we become enslaved to sin when we no longer are following the Holy Spirit in our life. And we end up in bondage when we don't need to be. And that can happen to even believers. As Israel cried out to the Lord, and the same way we cry out for restoration, Lord, I've drifted from you, Lord, bring me back to you, right? Uh, he does the same thing. God raised up judges. Israel was delivered, and in the same way, we kind of go through a similar cycle ourselves at times. Well, then, as I said, the summary of the entire book, it really ends up being there at the end, was there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We have moved from one disaster to another as we've gone down this slippery slope. Remember, we looked at Gideon. I grew up thinking Gideon was a big hero. We learned that Gideon was kind of a chicken. He really was. He hid down in that wine press and all that business. And then, oh, strong Samson. Samson has an Achilles heel. And what's his Achilles heel? We want to say, women, what's his real Achilles heel? His flesh. He chose flesh instead of following the Almighty unto whom he was dedicated as a child. So we see Joshua being a book of conquest to now we're moving to Judges that is compromised and finally defeat at the end of Judges. We're not going to end on a down note. I want to talk about what positive things we can reap out of God's Word because Paul even tells us we study these things lest we fall into sin. We're to learn from them and learn how to behave and what to do and learn about the mercies of God. The summary statement was there was no king in Israel, and each person did what was right in his own eyes. And I've said that kind of, in, we're in a parallel time point in our own country. And if you'll read my written sermon today, I talk about it in depth, where we're at a point now, we don't have a king, but the king was the rule of law then. And now we have a time where much of the rule of law is being thrown out, thrown out whittled away by the Supreme Court going from objective truth to subjective truth, okay, where people can decide what's right and wrong for them. That is a formula for societal disaster. So where we end up, where we've ended up these last two or three weeks is this chapter 17 through 21. It doesn't fit in chronologically. I happen to think that these stories that we're reading, these accounts that we're reading happened very, very early in the judge's experience. 
And I'm going to show you why in a few minutes when we read it. We're going to read a lot of scripture today, jumping over some of the details of the battle. But these stories that are stuck here on the end, it's the writer telling us just how horrible it can get when God's people are holy outside of his will. Not holy, but completely outside of his will. And we talked about during this time, the writer points out this idea of syncretism. Do you guys remember that word from last week? Syncretisms when we're mixing things. Scott, you deal with metals. You put certain metals with other kinds of metals all the time. You did that in your business to make them stronger and this sort of thing. Syncretism, spiritual syncretism, is when we mix untruth with truth. And we end up with something that's much weaker, okay? And that's what we saw Micah did. Remember back in chapter 17? Was that last week that we studied 17? I get confused now that I also do a teaching on Wednesday night. But in 17, we read about Micah and his idols. I believe that. Oh, last week was the Danites is what we talked about in here. Yeah. But we had Micah with his idols. He steals money from his mother. Mom curses whoever stole the money. He brings it back. Oh, Mom, I'm so sorry. It was me that took the 1,100 shekels. Oh, no bother. Glad you brought it to me because I'm going to use it to have carved images and idols made to worship Yahweh. Does something sound weird about that? If it doesn't, then you're not reading your Bible. That means, Bill, that they mixed paganism with their faith, okay? Micah did that, and then in chapter 18, we saw that the Danites, who were out looking for more territory, they go, wow, these are, have y'all heard about these idols that are up there in Micah's house? We went there, and this fake priest, this Levite, said a prayer over us, and we went up and saw that we could conquer people. There must be something to this. We talked Wednesday night how often there's a little bit of truth that's mixed in or there's a little bit of truth that's mixed in with gigantic lies, and that's how people get sidetracked and follow things that are not true. Anyway, they come, they take the images, they end up up in the northern part of the country, and it ends saying that they made, they set up these images, they had ephods, they did all of this idol worship, and it says, and all the time that the Lord, the house of God, was in Shiloh. They ignored where they were supposed to be. They ignored what they were supposed to be doing. And I talked about how for us, the thing that we're to do is gather together as believers. That's what the Word tells us. And we're to study God's Word, not study my opinions, but God's Word so we, can, so we won't sin against Him, as David says. You know, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. 19 was the Levite and his concubine. We read that on Wednesday. There were no heroes. It's just an odd tale about this Levite that has this concubine. They go through all this business. They end up having to spend the night. They decide not to spend the night in Jebus, which is later to be Jerusalem. But they decide they want to go where the people are friendly. And they go to Gibeah, all right? This is where Saul will end up being from. And the men of Gibeah came that night, banged on the door, demanding to have homosexual relations with the Levite. That he would be thrown in the street, the Levite throws his concubine out. She's gang raped by the whole group in Gibeah, and then we're end up ending up today where we're going to be. It was so upsetting. There in the end, this Levite cuts up the concubine into 12 pieces. Yeah, guys, this is in the Bible. And sends each piece to each of the tribes of Israel. To me, it was kind of a false outrage in a way, too. It's kind of hypocritical because he's the one that had thrown her out the door and all this stuff happened to her. And we looked and looked, and there were no heroes. Everybody in it was a bad guy. 
You know, we like to figure out who's the good guy. Let me cheer for the good guy. There are no good guys in these stories, and the author puts them in there. This morning, we're going to read about vengeance to wipe out the tribe of Benjamin without seeking God and what God would have them do. They go, we're going to go kill all these people. Then once they realize, oh, no, we've almost wiped out one of the tribes of Israel, then they're all contrite, and they have all kinds of odd attempts to repopulate the tribe of Benjamin, lest Israel be 11 tribes of Israel instead of 12. So we're going to read it. It's all nutty. Don't think that you're supposed to learn normative behavior. You all know what normative means, what you're supposed to do. A lot of stuff in the Bible showing us what you ought not to do, okay? Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean you need to do it. So let's see where we are today. Uh, And I wanted to preface this by saying we all have probably heard what Nietzsche said in 1883. He was a German philosopher, and he said God is dead. Have you all heard that somewhere along the way, that Nietzsche said God is dead? Okay. In 1900, Nietzsche is dead. That's what God said, because Nietzsche died. But, But I found something even more interesting. At the same time as Nietzsche, there was a Russian writer named Fyodor Dostoevsky, all right? He wrote a philosophical novel like 1880, called The Brothers Karamazov. He was a Russian guy. And in it, there's an atheist named Ivan Karamazov who proclaimed, if God's dead, then everything's permitted. Do you all follow it? And if you'll go look at the written sermon, I quote the entire business that Nietzsche said, and it's, it's just mind-boggling to read it. He talks about we're the ones that have killed God. It's, it's all was real fascinating to me. I kind of ended up going on a dive, how you do. You know, you look on YouTube for... The, the lives of cranes, and you end up finding what war went on between the Chinese and the Japanese or something. And that's kind of what I did. I just looked at this, but the whole idea is that if you don't have objective truth, you always have societal chaos. You really do. And that's what we're going to see today. Ben, Judges 20, 1 through 28, strap on your, strap yourselves into your seats, and let's read uh, chapter I'm going to chapter 20, and we're almost going to read it in its entirety. Follow me, please. Judges chapter 20, trying to drive Benjamin into extinction. See, all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead. And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. Do you guys realize we have read 20 chapters in Judges, and the people had never gathered as one people before the Lord? It shows you where they were. This is the first time that's at the very end. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. 400,000 of them now are going to go after the Benjamites who have done this to the concubine. Now, the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the children of Israel said, tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? So, The Levite, verse 4, the husband of the woman, this is a different Levite, okay? This isn't that one back there with Micah. This is the one who had the concubine who's chopped her up and sent her to the 12 tribes. The Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, My concubine and I went up to Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me, and they intended to kill me. Well, they intended to rape him. That's what... We read in the prior chapter, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. 
So I took hold of my concubine, I cut her into pieces, and I sent her throughout the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all of you who are children of Israel, give your advice and counsel here now. He's saying, guys, this is what happened. I want you all to tell me what we need to do. Verse 8. So all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will we turn back to our house. But now this is the thing that we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. That means they would draw straws and see one-tenth of the people would go. We will take ten men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand, a thousand out of every ten thousand, to make provisions for the people, that when they come to Gibeah and Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united together as one. Twelve. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout, through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now, therefore, deliver up these men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, those that had come out and done all this, okay, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men. Among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed, Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. I thought that was kind of a curious anecdote there, left-handed. Did y'all know that Benjamin made son of my right hand? <laughs> Which is kind of odd. I don't know if that has anything to do with that these were left-handed. He's saying they're not acting like they were supposed to act. Now besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. So we've, we've been given the numbers here that the, the Benjamites were 26,700 people. You need to remember these numbers as you see what happens. And Israel was 400,000, 18. Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah first. So the children of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. And the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and on that day cut down 22,000 men of the Israelites. So here again we have Israelites killing Israelites. 22,000 of Israel of the 400,000 died. Verse 22. And the people, that is the men of Israel, encouraged themselves again, formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day, and Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. Wow, that's 40,000 now of Israel, which is 10%. One out of every 10 died, and all these drew the sword. The next day, uh, yeah, what I say is the next day they lost 18,000, so now we're looking at 40,000 in Israel that have died. 26, and then all of the children of Israel, that is all of the people, they're, they're finally giving up, went and came to the house of God and they wept. They sat there before the Lord and they fasted that day until evening. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the children of Israel 
inquired of the Lord because the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. Listen to this. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. He said, that's why I think this is early in the game. Do y'all follow me? Aaron's grandson is still there serving as the priest. And he stood before them saying, shall I yet again go to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin or shall I cease? And the Lord said, go up for tomorrow. I will deliver them into your hand. So he goes on and he explains the battle in verses 29 through 46 that we're not going to read. You can read it on your own where it talks about the strategy. I want to talk about Phineas for a second. Phineas is the guy, do y'all remember when we did our Torah study that there were people that were, I think it was Balaam, wasn't it, that had given counsel to corrupt Israel by sending Canaanite women. And they ended up, Phineas found this couple that were in their tent, uh, engaged in sex, and he comes in in that story, and we read about it, where he basically made him a barbecue spear, skewer. Do you all remember that? He grabs the spear and throws it through them. This is the same guy, which I think is kind of interesting. This is very contemporary with what went on right when the children of Israel left Israel. So anyway, the battle plan's given, and we go to 47, but 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the Rock of Ramon, and they stayed at the Rock of Ramon, so that means... That means that 600 Benjamites were left, okay? That's all. They went and hid out in Ramon, and the children of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamite, of Benjamin and struck them down with the sword from every city, men and beast, all who were found, and they also set fire to all the cities they came to. So Benjamin was defeated, the city was burned to the ground, and the tribe of Benjamin lost 25,000 men. They had only started with 26,700, so there weren't many left. And the text tells us that 600 men turned and fled to the rock of Ramon, where they stayed four months, and that was near Bethel. So what's happened is they've, they've wiped out all of Benjamin except this remnant of these guys. I, I've, I have a misprint here. It's actually everybody's been kill, killed, I believe here, except for these 600 that are there, and they're hiding out. Chapter 21, now we're going to have a flip-flop, and Israel's going to figure out, oh, no, we've killed everybody. How do we get them back? It's strange, isn't it? So once the tribes of Israel realized that one of the tribes was almost wiped out, they began to understand that the 12 tribes of Israel was about to be no more. They panicked, uh, and the rest of the tribes made an oath. They said, we're not going to let any of our daughters marry any of these Benjamites that are up there in the, in the Rock of Ramon. So here's the problem. How's Benjamin going to continue if there are no women? Okay, and that's that's the problem that gets solved in a weird way in chapter 21. Chapter 21, now the men of Israel, and we're not going to read this totally, had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. When the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till the evening, they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel, that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? Why were they asking God? They're the ones that went and killed everybody. So it was on the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there, offering burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the children of Israel said, Who is there among all of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the assembly to the Lord? So they got this weird thing going on where they're going, Oh, no, we made an oath, but was there anybody missing here? Because if they weren't here and they didn't make an oath, then we can go take their women. Y'all see what's going on? This is flesh upon flesh upon flesh. For they had made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. So they said, whoever didn't show up at our 
get together, then let's go after them. And the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives, for those who remain, seeing we have sworn to the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives? And they said, What one is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to the Lord? They're going, Who was missing? Who was not here? And they go, Oh, in fact, no one came from the camp of Jabesh Gilead to this assembly. I'm telling y'all, this is really strange. For when the people were counted, indeed, no, no one from Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent out 12,000 of their valiant men, and they commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and the children. And this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman. Now, why are we doing, doing this? Who has known a man intimately. They were doing this so they could come and just take the vir virgins that were there, and there would be nobody to speak up for them. Do you all see how this is chaos and how horror gets stacked upon horror? This is why the Jews for centuries have called this the text of terror, because it was terror. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Now, just so you guys will know, if you've ever been to Israel, Jabesh Gilead's right there by Bet Shean. Y'all been to Bet Shean. And it's right outside of Bet Shean where King Saul and his sons are all going to be hung later on. So that, that's where this is going on. None of those came to the battle. So the Israelites took the virgins uh, and they sent word to the Benjamites. It says they took the young virgins to Shiloh and they sent word to the Benjamites at the rock of Ramon that they had brought them wives. 13, then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were at the Rock of Ramon and announced peace to them. So Benjamin came back at the time and they gave them women whom they had saved alive from the women of Jabesh Gilead. And yet they had not found enough for them. They only had 400. They had 600 guys. They need 200 more women. Verse 22 gives their reasoning for doing this. And I say here, it is just how ridiculous things get when we lean on our own understanding. Therefore, they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, Go lie, I'm at verse 20, lie in the vineyards and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, come out from the vineyards, and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh. Then go to the land of Benjamin. Somebody's laughing. Oh, you're laughing. Can you believe this is in the Bible? It's wild, isn't it? So it gives us their reasoning for doing this. 23, and the children of Benjamin did so, and they took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt the cities and the dwelt in them. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And the writer sums it all up by saying, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Judges shows us how crazy things get. When God's people get out of the will of God and when they do what is right in their own eyes, social fabric falls apart. The old man that we read about, he was at fault. Remember the old man? He, he was not without fault. The Levite, they did what was right in their eyes. The tribe of Benjamin did what was right in their own eyes. And the other tribes did what was right in their eyes. It was all a mess. I want to remind you all that just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's an example for us to follow, okay? 
These are not examples of any kind of good behavior where we go and we lie upon lie or we try to sort things out in a way that in our flesh that we think they can, they can be solved, okay? Also, I want to point out a positive of this. The fact that these negative stories are in the Bible, in law, we would say it speaks against its own interest. And it's further proof that the Bible is true. Do you follow me? The Bible is full of telling us all of the foibles and the faults of, of the people in it. And I think that's a very, very uh, strong bit of evidence that what's in the Bible is true. It doesn't try to sugarcoat things and make them look good. It speaks to the failures of the people contained there. The book of Joshua was, was all about victory through faith. Now we've seen Judges is about defeat, compromise, and faithlessness. Yet God's will throughout all of this was sovereign. Benjamin was saved. Do you all realize who came from the tribe of Benjamin? And you are benefactors here today. Raise your hand if you're Jewish. Can nobody raise their hand? Everybody in here is a Gentile. And most all of us have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And you did it through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. Well, wait a minute. I thought Benjamin got wiped out. No, because of the story that we read today. So there we have the Apostle Paul of the tribe of Benjamin who becomes the minister to the Gentiles, that's us, and leads us to Jesus, and in him we have eternal life. Amen. If you can't amen that and clap with Judy on that, something's wrong. Amen. Thank you, brother. So, had they not been saved, there would be no Apostle Paul. There would no, be no King Saul. He was from the tribe of Benjamin as well. God is steadily, you guys, working his purposes out. Don't be shaken by what's going on in Eastern Europe. Let's pray for our Ukrainian brothers. You can send money to help, and I'm going to tell you in a minute how to do that through Audrey and Mike's uh, Devonport's friend, okay? God is working his purposes out, and yes, Sue, we can pray for the whole situation. She misunderstood me Wednesday and says, we can't even pray about this. Guys, we can pray about everything. I just want to go on record saying that right now, okay? Our task as believers is to stay centered in his will. How do we stay centered in his will? One way is we obey what he says. He says, don't forsake the gathering together. We come together to encourage one another, to build one another up. I'm glad you're here today. Coming tonight to your house to, to, to minister to your wife who couldn't make it today, okay? But we come together to lift one another up and point each other to Jesus. He is the solution. And secondly, we come to learn the Word of God so that we can hide it in our heart that we won't sin against Him. Okay? That's what we're here to do. Our task is to stay centered in His will. The will of God, I want to end by saying, is not always easy, but it's always right. Okay? And that's our word for today. Scott? Oh, just another word is we're not having communion. I was late in ordering the communion supplies. I wasn't late. They were late in delivering them, but I should have ordered them maybe a couple of months ago.